Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I trust you do. If you can open with me to Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 1, is, is where we're going to begin. And we're going to kind of be all over the book today. So welcome to week 5 of a series that we are calling Come Back to Me, where we are walking through the 12 minor prophets one week at a time. And uh, we go from the least known and uh, least popular of the minor prophets, Obadiah, as we did last week, to the, today we come to the most well-known, uh, most popular of the minor prophets, which is Jonah. Now most of you should kind of have a, a pretty good sense of this book since we spent uh, last year five weeks walking through it um, together. And that became my issue is that as we were, as I was preparing for the message, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to try to reinvent. I mean, I preached a five-week series on it. Let me just glean from that. And then the issue became, how in the world am I going to condense five weeks worth of sermons into one? So the answer is it's going to be a long one. Or, or, or not, we're going to try to get through it the best that we, we can. So some of these things, hopefully you remember and have applied. And if not, God has, as we're going to learn again, God has brought you right back to this today for a, a reason. So I don't personally know every detail of every person in this room, but I do um, know or I would guess that most of us are probably familiar with the story of Jonah. You know the story. So God puts Jonah in the belly of a well. He finds his father Geppetto. They make a fire. The well vomits them up, and then Jonah becomes a real boy. So we know this. Oh, that, that's not it. Okay. Well, never mind. Never mind. That's not it. But um, most of us know, know the story. In case you're wondering right now, that was Pinocchio. So um, God, here's what we do know about the story of Jonah. God extends his mercy in the book of Jonah, to a people who do not deserve his mercy, and one named Jonah who had received the mercy of God is upset that God would extend it to someone else, to someone he did not think was worthy of mercy. So this morning we come to a biblical story um, in the Minor Prophets that involves one man, a wicked nation, a big fish, and a gracious and pursuing God. Yet consider the theme of Jonah. Let me just say this. The theme of Jonah is not the famous fish. The fish is only mentioned four times in the book. In fact, the wicked city of Nineveh is not even the theme. It's only mentioned nine times. I would tell you that Jonah himself is not the theme. He is only mentioned 18 times. The theme of the book of Jonah is God and God alone. Of the 48 verses of Jonah, God is in 38 of them. He is the main point. He is the central figure in this story. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. He says, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And that's how most of us, when we think about it, how we view the book of Jonah, in our minds, we look at the big fish, we look at Jonah, we don't consider the great God um, that, that is in every aspect of this book. And what we learn from this book is that God is... Loving, merciful, caring, and he is pursuing. We can run from him, but we cannot hide from him. We may struggle, we may rebel against God, but when we do, hear this, God will pursue us. God will come after us. 
And before we unpack the main points of this book, and as we said in our series on the Minor Prophets, um, the goal is not to unpack everything in every book. Because some of them are kind of long, that would be impossible. The goal is, is to kind of bring some of the main things to the, to the surface um, each and every week. But before we do that, I want to just, as the best I can, give you a biography of, of Jonah. And here's what we know. Jonah, the, here's the, the simple thing. Um, the, the obvious thing, Jonah is a prophet of God. So Jonah is a prophet, one who had the privilege of um, and the calling of hearing from God. And then as he heard from God, he shared that message that God gave him. He shared it to others. And so um, the word of God had come to Jonah um, on, on Many different occasions, people in and around Jonah would have considered him um, with great respect because he was a, a prophet. Yet this is where Jonah's um, biography gets a little interesting. Jonah seems to follow in the footsteps of two of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And get this, according to Jewish tradition, and I love this, this picture, according to Jewish um, Tradition, it says that Jonah was the son of the widow of Zarephath, um, whom Elijah raised from the dead. So just imagine that. Imagine him being um, someone who had been raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but if I'm raised from the dead, it's going to be, okay, God, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And I will do it. So from that relationship, Jonah went into the prophet school. He was trained um, by the prophets, and that is just tradition, but I think it's a very interesting tradition. And although um, there had obviously been, so think about this, there had probably had been other words that God gave to Jonah. He was a prophet. He had probably received other words. Yet this word from this book and Jonah's response to this word becomes the defining act of Jonah's ministry. We don't know how Jonah responded in other callings of God. We don't know how Jonah gave the word of God in other things. All we know is that God gave this word and we know how Jonah responded to it. And let me just begin by saying this. Think of if, if we need to hear anything, it is this. Don't minimize your response to any command that God gives you. Don't minimize it. Meaning this, you could say no to God today. You could say no to God today, and you could begin a journey today that will end in vomit and fish guts. J just saying. That, that's what we get from the book of of Jonah. So don't minimize any word that God gives to you. You might it might not be serious to you, but if God gives it to you, it's serious to him. And he will continue to pursue you until you do what he says. So we're going to this morning dive in and pun intended um, to this deep book and we're going to see what God has to show us. And let me just say this, us, um, a people who are all prone to run from God. So we are all a people prone to wonder, prone to run, prone to um, want our own way. And we're going to see what God has to show us about his heart and his pursuit of us. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to begin by just reading all of chapter 1 just to get a great foundation. Like I said, most of us know this book and maybe we know it too well. But may today in a fresh and a new way God just pour out his spirit upon it and upon us that we would hear and that we would do what God would have us to do. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, when you get there, let me hear you say, Amen. it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. But he, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, and we ask, Father, that what we know not, that you would show us, that what we have not, that you would give us, and Lord, what we are not, that you would make us, all by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So I want you to think about this. When we think about this picture of Jonah and God-sized mercy and think about the calling of God upon Jonah, his response, all of these things, I think the ultimate thing that comes out of this is this, that God's word is ultimate. Even when God asks us to do things that we don't want to do or God asks us to do something that we could never even imagine him asking us to do, God's word is ultimate. We must do what it says. And just think about the reality of God's word to to Jonah. And God's word here is reflecting his own character. It's also showing the heart of a, of a man, the heart of a, a prophet. But this word that God gives is concerning a wicked people, a wicked nation um, called Nineveh. And just to give a little extra background here, and maybe you would remember this, but Nineveh at the time was the biggest, baddest, cruelest city on the face of the earth. Nineveh sat right where um, Iran and Iraq do today. Nineveh was a huge city. Um, its walls were 100 feet tall. It was said that the walls were so wide that three chariots could race side by side around them. Now, I don't know how you're racing on 100 feet tall uh, walls, but I guess somebody did. Um, and some believe that Nineveh at the time of Jonah was close, or had close to 2 million people in it. So this is a massive, well-protected city. But not just that. 
This city was known for its wickedness and its brutality against its enemies. In fact, they even created and invented forms of execution against their enemies. And let me just give you one. Um, when Nineveh would conquer an enemy, they would skin alive their captives. Then they would bury these freshly skinned captives up to their heads in the sand while keeping them alive. Then they would pull out their tongues and drive a stake through their tongues into the ground so that they would lang languish in pain and they would eventually die of thirst. Once they died, they would then um, decapitate, take the heads off of their captives, and they would create a pyramid outside the city. This is, and this was the people of Nineveh, wicked, brutal, intimidating people. And to those people, God said, Jonah, I want you to go to them on a mission of mercy. I mean, can you even imagine? I think that the, the only comparison I could come up with, it would be like during the height of the World War II in Nazi Germany, for God saying, I want you to go to Berlin and I want you to knock on the door of Mr. Hitler. And I want you to tell him that he is being a bad sinner and he needs to stop it. I mean, just to imagine that scenario. Yet no matter how irrational God's commands might sound, the word of God reveals to us the heart of God. And God is compassionate towards sinners, even us. So again, what I, what I want to do this morning is I want to dive into four truths that kind of um, show up or kind of come forth from um, the book of Jonah. Four things that I believe must be our response to this book. Four things that we must do in response to the book of of Jonah. So the first is this. The first truth is we must be desperate for the presence of God. We must be desperate for the presence of God. So what we see in the book of Jonah is open rebellion against God. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he instead ran the other way. And not just a little ways away, Tarshish was 2,500 miles away from Nineveh. It would take him a year to sail there. So let me just say this. Think about this. We are never further away from God than when we're close to him and say no. We're never further away from him than when we're walking close to him and yet we say no. And the reality here is that Jonah in his disobedience found a ship going to Tarshish, a ship that was ready to take Jonah away from um, or as far away as he could get from God. And think about this. Sometimes, sometimes we think, well, Jonah was just running away from the assignment. He didn't like the assignment that God gave him, so he was running away from the assignment. But that's not what the Word of God tells us. In fact, three times in Jonah 1, it is said that Jonah was running away from the presence of God. Not just an assignment. He was running away from the face of God, from the presence of God, from fellowship with God. Basically, when God's presence went one way and what Jonah desired went the other way, Jonah chose his desires over God's presence. Which begs the question of us, brothers and sisters, how valuable is God's presence to us? Do we choose our preferences over his presence every day of the week? Do, do we choose what we desire over his desire? And here's what I love. One of the things that make makes the Bible's approach to God so much different than every other religion 
is this. Every other religion paints a God whom you must keep rules um, in order to know and not much of relationship with other religions. But the God of the Bible focuses not on doing, but on experiencing and knowing. We are able to experience his presence. Think about this. Go back to Genesis in the garden. In the cool of the evening, and I always thought that was um, a, a very cool phrase there, the cool of the evening. God likes coolness. But God would come down and he would walk with Adam and Eve. God didn't just leave them a list and say, hey, get to the list, and when you're done with the list, I might come down. No, every day God would walk with them and talk with them. They knew God. Then think about when God led Israel out of slavery. He led them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Then that cloud would set down in the tabernacle. Later it would be in the temple where God's presence was in the middle of it. God tabernacled with his people. When Jesus came on the scene, when he was born on earth, it was declared that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's with us. He's for us. When Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came and possessed all believers, showing Christ's presence, not just with us, but now in us. So just think about this. Adam and Eve declares that God walks with us. The temple declares that God is in the midst of us. Emmanuel declares that God is with us. And the Holy Spirit declares that the Spirit of God is in us. What man lost in the garden, what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, get this, was the presence of God. Since then, our hearts have desired to be reunited to him and to know him again, to have him again as our father and as our friend. You may not even know it, but the deepest longing of your heart is the presence of God. Now, most people don't know that or don't take time to, to think about that or even let that thought creep in. But the deepest desire of our lives is God's presence, which begs the question again, how valuable is God's presence to, to us? How valuable is it? Are you running towards him in relationship or are you running away from him in rebellion? Let me ask that again. Are you running Towards God in relationship with him? Or are you running away from him in rebellion? Jonah ran from God. And eventually he ended up in the belly of a big fish. And here's what I know. The belly of a big fish is not a great place to live. But it is a great place to learn. And how many of you have ever learned from the belly of a big fish? Okay, two of us. Well, the rest of you will eventually figure it out um, because it will come in your life. If you are a child of God and you will run away from God because that's what we do, there will be a big fish and you will learn what it is to um, learn lessons inside of that fish. So the picture is, we have to think about this. You would think that swallowing or being swallowed by a big fish would pretty much be the end of your story. We would expect, and Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, the end. That's what we would expect. But here's the beautiful thing. When it comes to God, please hear this. When it comes to God, things that should be endings have a way of becoming beginnings. When it comes to our gracious God, things that should be the end of us have, have an amazing way of becoming beginnings for us. Thus is the mercy of God. So we must be desperate for the presence of God. And the second truth 
Great segue there is this. We must celebrate the mercy of God. We must celebrate God's mercy. Look with me now. Skip over chapter 2 to chapter 3. What we know in the meantime, Joel was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, he prays a prayer at the end of chapter 2. He is vomited out on the dry land. And then the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the what? The second time. Everything in the entire biblical story, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is found in those two words, second time. Think about it. Adam and Eve, in an act of outrageous rebellion against God, they disobeyed him. Although they faced the consequences for their sin against him, God's immediate response to them was this. This is not the end of your story. It's not the end of your story, Adam and Eve. You would think it should be the end of your story. It's not the end. So everything that God did from there, all the weird stories that we read in the Old Testament, was God's way of showing um, that he is, in fact, the God of the second chance. He is the God of the comeback. The fact that the words second time appear in our Bibles is a picture of God's grace for us. God wants us every one of us in this room to understand that there is no sinful act that can't be turned by the glory of God, by His grace, that can't be turned around for good. There's no act in your life and my life that He cannot turn for good. And let me just say this. There is no act that God can't take that person that's the biggest enemy in our lives and also work it for good. He is able is there any praise in our hearts for that? There should be. It's amazing to me that God would even be patient to Jonah at all. Jonah shook his fist in the face of God and said, God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And then Jonah tried his best to go to the other end of the universe and that God would look at that man and say, I'm going to give him a second chance. It just blows my mind. Do we really understand the mercy of God? When was the last time that you thanked God for his mercy towards you? And let me just say this. If it wasn't today, then you're not living in the future, or you're not living in the present because my Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning. So if we don't thank God for his mercy today, then we are not living in the present. We're not living where we should be living. But here's the beautiful truth. God's mercy didn't just stop with Jonah. It extended even to the wicked people of Nineveh. These two stories are connected by the fact that God used a person to whom he had given a second chance to reach out to a people that God desired to give a chance so Jonah went to Nineveh, and he proclaimed an eight-word message. In fact, it's five words in the, in the Hebrew. But it says this in verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, I wouldn't think many people would be walking down the aisle on that one. And what we know is, at the end of the book, what we learn is that Jonah's heart wasn't even in the message. But yet he declared it. And I would say this, this probably wasn't the greatest message that Jonah ever declared or ever preached. In fact, he didn't even tell the people what to do next. He didn't even say, judgment's coming and here's what you should do. He just says, you're about to be overthrown, good luck. And he just moves on about his way. He, but notice what happened. 
And verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They believed God, which shows us something beautiful. And that is this. It shows us that people are not converted by eloquent speeches. People are converted by the power of God. And here's the beautiful thing. At the end of the day, Jonah wasn't just dealing with skeptics that needed to be convinced. He wasn't dealing with bad people that needed to become good. He was dealing with spiritually dead people that needed to be brought to life. And get this, only God can do that. Only God can do that. And so this is so good. Only God can take what is dead and bring them to life. But don't miss it. And let me just say this. Don't read um, this book and then presume on the mercy of God. Meaning, let me just say this very clearly. God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. But God doesn't owe you mercy. God doesn't owe me mercy. In fact, let me just say this. God doesn't owe us anything except for hell. It's what God owes us. That's what we deserve. If we want to speak about deserving, that's what we deserve. But God graciously gives us mercy. God, so let me just say it again. God doesn't owe us mercy. He graciously gives us mercy, and when he does, we owe him obedience. So let me say that again for those not following along with us. God doesn't owe us mercy. He graciously gives us mercy, yet when he does, we owe him obedience. Jonah did not deserve the mercy he received. In fact, I would tell you this. The villain of the book of Jonah is not Nineveh. The villain of the book of Jonah is Jonah. Jonah is the villain here. Jonah did nothing to merit or deserve the mercy of God. Nineveh did nothing to deserve the mercy of God. Yet the point is this. God's mercy is so amazing that he continually extends it to the undeserving. That's how it got to us. Let me say it again. God's mercy got to us because he extends it to the undeserving, and then get this, and then he extends his mercy through the undeserving. As he extends it to us, he then extends it through us. And he extended his mercy through an undeserving prophet named Jonah. His mercy, his mission. So we, we must be desperate for the presence of God. We must celebrate the mercy of God. Number three, we must participate in the mission of God. Participate in the mission of God. So think about this. I just said this. Although God's mercies are new every morning, which means that the morning that Jonah got vomited out on dry land, God's mercies were new that day. Notice, was it, notice what wasn't new. What wasn't new was God's command to Jonah. In fact, it didn't change at all. What I mean by that is this. God's mercy over us doesn't change God's command to us. In fact, look at verse... Uh, uh, let me just read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and you'll see it on the screen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. We get to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The message did not change. His assignment did not change. The word of God kept coming and saying, go and declare my word to those people. And don't miss it. God's instrument of life is his word. 
The Word of God is not just information. The Word of God is not just a bunch of commands. The Word of God, this Word, has power in it. In fact, it is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. So here's the important part for us. Let me just pause for a second so we understand the gravity here. The Word of God cannot do its work where people haven't heard it. The Word of God cannot do its work where people have not heard it. Which means that our objective is to get the Word of God into people's lives. To get them in the presence of the Word of God and then God can do His work in them. God is at work every day all around us, but there is only one thing that He can only do or will only do through us, and that is this, proclaim the gospel. Let me just um, give you a, a kind of a deep thought here. In the book of Acts, so think about the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have all these amazing stories about how God works, miraculous, crazy things that God is doing in the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, the only beings... The only beings in the book of Acts who preach the gospel are humans. Think about this. Jesus talks to Saul. Angels talk to Peter and all these other things that are happening. But all throughout the whole book of Acts, the only ones, the only way that the gospel is presented is through human mouths. In Acts 8, Ethiopian eunuch through Philip. Acts 9, Saul We would know him, the Apostle Paul, through Ananias. In Acts 10, Cornelius through Peter. The point that's being made all the way through the book of Acts and even here in the book of Jonah is that the word of God has to be spoken through a human vessel and then God will do the rest. God will do the rest. So what Jonah is doing here is Jonah is walking into a city that he doesn't want to be in and though he doesn't even know it, he is sharing the gospel as it had been revealed at least to that point. And I don't know if we know this, but God, the word gospel wasn't originally, originally a, a religious word. The word gospel was a Greek word that was used in times of war. So think about, so just think Sparta here. So the Spartans would go out to war, and whoever would win would send a messenger back into their city. So if Sparta went off to war, and if they won, which was normally the case, They would send a messenger back to Sparta. And do you know what the messenger would take back to the city after a victory? Good news. And do you know what that good news was called? The gospel. And there's a really cool story associated with this. There is a small town in Greece called Marathon, which is located 26 miles away from Athens. Well, history tells us of a tremendous battle that took place at the coast of Marathon between the Persians and um, the Athenians. Marathon was being invaded, so the Athenians sent an army down to, to Marathon, although um, their army was smaller compared to the Persians. In fact, they were outnumbered four to one. They were supposed to lose the battle, yet in a remarkable turn of events, the Athenians won. After they won the battle, they assigned a messenger to run with the gospel 26 miles back to Athens, becoming, of course, the first Marathon runner. He took the gospel 26 miles back to Athens. He ran into the middle of the city. He cried out the words, victory, and then he dropped dead. Not the way we want to think about the story, but I think about this in a weird kind of way. He died with the gospel message on his lips. 
Now, it wasn't the gospel message that we know it that saves, but it was the gospel message of victory. And he, he died with it on his lips. And here's what I know. Most of us, most of us in this room won't die sharing the gospel. But here's what I do know. We must die to self before we will share the gospel. We have to die to self before we will share the gospel. We have to say to, to ourselves, God, this isn't about me. This is about you. Therefore, I have to deny myself. I have to die to myself for the sake of what you have for me. We have to die to ourselves before we give ourselves to his mission. Have we done that? For Jonah, it happened inside the belly of a fish. Where will it happen for us? We must participate in the mission of God. And then lastly, the last truth is this. We must resonate the heartbeat of God. We must resonate the heartbeat of God. And that leads us now to Jonah chapter 4. Again, let me just say this. What, Jonah, what, what God asked Jonah to do was irrational, if not even a little bit crazy. Yet let me just say this. The reason that Jonah ran wasn't because he was afraid of the people of Nineveh. It wasn't because he didn't think God would forgive them. Remember, this guy's a prophet. He has seen God work in some amazing ways. So why did Jonah run away? Why did Jonah refuse to take the message? Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah tells us. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Did you just hear what Jonah said? The reason that he ran was not because he was afraid. The reason that he ran wasn't because he didn't think God was going to forgive. The reason that he fled because he knew that if the people repented, God would forgive them. And Jonah didn't want God to forgive them. Jonah's saying, God, I knew if they repented, you'd forgive them. And I didn't want them to do that. Just think about this. Jonah, in this moment, did not share the heart of God. He confessed this even after Nineveh repented and believed in God. In chapter 4, let me just kind of sum it up real quick. In chapter 4, Jonah's ticked off. He's ticked off. He's, he's mad. He's saying, God, I went and declared this message, and now you're, you're going to forgive them, and you're going to make me out to be a liar. How dare you make me out to be a liar, God? And so Moses, or excuse me, Jonah put himself up so he could see the city, just hoping that maybe the wicked people of Nineveh would be wicked again, and God would destroy them. So he puts himself up. He begins to complain against God and say, God, just kill me. So God... Um, makes a plant that covers him, that gives him shade, and, and Jonah is basking in that shade, and then God appoints a, a worm to come and eat away that plant. Now, some people say that that, um, that plant that God chose to raise up there at, at the, that place would have been a castor oil plant. So imagine the, the um, still belly of that worm and eating that plant. But regardless of what happened, here's what we know. The plant died, and Jonah again was ticked off. He was mad that God would do this. In fact, let me tell you what, what Jonah's deal was. Jonah valued his comfort more than the lost. 
There's a word to the church there. There's a word to the church there. Anytime, brothers and sisters, we put our preferences above the needs of the world around us who don't know Jesus, we do not, we are not, our hearts are not beating in line with the heartbeat of God. Anytime we put what we want, what we desire, our comforts over the lost and dying world around us, our hearts have failed to beat in unison with the heartbeat of God. And here's the beautiful thing. When we talk about the heartbeat of God, we need to remember that God has shown compassion for us. And let me just ask you this. Raise your hand in here if you deserve the mercy of God, if you were deserving of God's mercy. And please don't raise your hand because then I'll have to preach another service. God is so merciful to the undeserving. And God ends the book by telling Jonah, and you actually, it's actually on the screen, and you can see it in verses 9 through 11. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord says, and just imagine this, the Lord says, you pity a plant. That's a good place to just to pause. You pity a plant, Jonah. And then in verse 11, God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left? God, God's heart beats for the undeserving and God's heart beats for his enemies. And that is really good news for us because according to Romans chapter 5, we were his enemies. That, so that becomes all of a sudden, that becomes really good news for us. Therefore, we should have compassion on what God has compassion on. Our hearts should beat in line with his. So God says to Jonah, you pity yourself. Jonah, but I pity sinners. You care about comfort and reputation, but Nineveh is filled with people who are lost and don't know the difference. And Jonah, that's what I care about. And that is the message for us today. Listen to the heart of God in saying this, should I not pity Nineveh? And Can you imagine getting to the place where you would look back at God after God has shown great mercy to you, and you would say, no, God, you shouldn't pity them. They're just too wicked. They'll never respond to your message. No, God, you shouldn't pity them. Yet this seems to be where Jonah was, which begs the question, how does the book of Jonah end? What is Jonah's response to this heavy question? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you, look at verse 12, and let's see his response. Oh, you don't have a verse 12 in your Bible? Um, because there is no verse 12. That's it. This book ends with a question. Here's what I know. You don't end books with questions, especially questions like this. You can't end a book like this. What happens to Jonah? Does he repent? Does he stay angry with God? Does he learn his lesson? Or is this the end of him as a prophet? Does he ever get it? I'd like to think he does because Jonah wrote this book and he included this question, which means he got it. He understood it. 
But I also believe that this book ends with a question like this because it's a question that we have to answer. Will we get it? Will we put the needs of other people above our own comforts? Will we put the reputation of God over our own reputation? Do we really believe that God's mercy extends to the undeserving? And if you don't, then let me ask you a question. How did his mercy make it to you? How did his mercy make it to you? Wasn't because you deserved it. Wasn't because you earned it. I think the question for us needs to be this. Do we really believe that every person on this side of heaven owes the gospel to every person on this side of hell? Do we really believe that? I believe God does. And that's why we're here. So the book of Jonah shines the spotlight on God's incredible mercy and love and grace for humanity and not just some of humanity, but all of humanity. And it also shines a light on our hearts, our running, rebelling, callous hearts. And the question I think we need to end with is this today. Will we join our hearts, our souls, our minds to the heart of God? running to his presence or will we like Jonah run away from his presence in rebellion oh today would be a day that you stop running oh today would be a day that we as a church would stop running if we were running away from anything that God is calling us to do may we stop running for the sake of the glory of God May we stop running and may we run into his presence. May his presence, may his heartbeats, may all that he has planned for us be accomplished as we die to ourselves and as we live for him and for him alone. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever God is asking us to do, that we would do it. As Brother Frank and the musicians come forward, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book, Lord, that oftentimes we are very familiar with. And sometimes we fail to realize that we see ourselves always maybe as Jonah, but there are times where we need to understand that there might be some in our midst today that's Nineveh that don't have a relationship with you. And today needs to be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, we're so thankful that you have promised a day for salvation to those who don't know you. And that day is called today. God, we pray if any be in here that don't know you, that today would be the day that they cry out to you, Father. They call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. But we also pray for the child of God in this room. Those of us, Lord, that we are prone to wonder, we are prone to run, and maybe there are those Here today, God, by your grace, that God, even though we're here, we are still running from you. And maybe we're even running in in, in plain sight. But yet we're running away from what you've called us to do. And today was just another way of you bringing us right back to that calling. You love us so much that you won't let us go from it. You keep bringing us back to it. And Lord, help us, God, not to argue with you or to keep running or to get angry because our preferences or our comforts are being ignored. God, help us to give ourselves to to your heart. Help us to love what you love, to desire what you desire, to want, God, what you want. 
Lord, help us to realize that as a people, our opinions and our preferences will never unite us together. The only thing that will ever unite us together is your spirit in us and the mission that you have given to us. Help us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to that. For the sake of a a world that is in desperate need of you. God, we confess that the world that we live in does not need more of our opinions. The world that we live in needs you. So help us to give up our opinions for the sake of giving them you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.